1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 20. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, all of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy has a single purpose, to remind Timothy of the charge he wa that he was to deal with the unsound teaching in the churches there in Ephesus. Last week, we considered how we can oppose and identify unsound teaching, but it's not merely the teaching itself, right? It's not merely just the, the ideas or the thoughts or the certain uh, supposed truths, right, the, the falsehoods. It's it's the people from whose mouths those teachings come. It's the, it's the human souls that are swerving from the faith, that are headed to shipwreck, that matter most, right? See, no one starts off in the faith knowing everything just right, right at the beginning, right? We all learn as we go. We never really stop learning. There's so many things to uh, know and to grow in in the Lord. There are certainly things that I wish I had known. Years ago, when someone first put the title pastor in front of my name, they, maybe they shouldn't have at that time, but they did. And there's things I wish that I had known then. I could have taught things more clearly. I could have, at times, maybe been in better alignment with God's Word. But growth and knowledge is needed, and that happens for all of us. And that doesn't bother me. Those things don't bother me so much. But what does bother me are a few things that I believed and taught that I now understand not just to be issues that I could have been more clear on or issues that are maybe debated amongst faithful Christians, but doctrines that were swerving from what the Bible actually says. Things I believed because maybe I had spent far more time in the cultural milieu around me than in the biblical text on those things. Perhaps churches didn't speak clearly to them that I had gone to, or, or perhaps they even spoke wrongly as well. Perhaps some did speak clearly, and I 
because those truths didn't feel good, didn't listen very carefully. Nevertheless, nevertheless, by God's grace, the Spirit used two things in my life to correct some of these issues. First, a commitment that God had given me to His Word and to His Word being an authority, the authority over my life, even if for a while, sometimes I read the Bible cross-eyed, if you will, you know, sort of like, okay, yeah, that's what it says. And the other thing that, the Spirit, that, that by the Spirit um, uh, helped me is a few men who were bold enough and patient enough to confront me on these points and to point me to particular texts which challenged my assumptions about them. And if you've had conversations with me to that end, then you know that it took those men a, a fair amount of boldness and patience, okay, uh, for which I am very, very grateful. It wasn't easy on them. It wasn't easy on me, but I am thankful for the merciful correction that I received. And so the bottom line for this sermon today and for this passage is this. Sound churches must oppose unsound teachers by aiming at merciful correction. That's our aim, merciful correction. And we can break this second half of the chapter into two parts, verses 12 through 17. Paul gives himself as an example of this. And in verses 18 through 20, he loops back to his original command and he sort of lands the plane. He sort of brings it home, if you will. And, and I think in this text, we find two reasons why we must oppose unsound teachers. First, because of the hope for opposing unsound teachers. And second, because of the risk. First, because of the hope. And second, because of the risk. So let's look at this. The, what's the hope for opposing unsound teachers? Why why should we even have hope in doing this? Naturally, after mentioning the gospel in verse 11, Paul offers himself as an example of the effect of the gospel in a person's life. The structure of 12 through 17 is, is really a tightly, tightly woven, almost like a poem, almost like a song that he's singing about his life and what God has done. It's like he put, it's like he put his testimony to poetry as he writes this. In verses 12 and 13, he starts with this thanksgiving to God. And if you look at the end of this section in verse 17, he ends with this grand praise of who God is. And then just inside of that, he has statements about God's mercy towards him and what that looked like. So we have two statements of God's mercy. And then in the very middle of the whole thing. In verse 15, we have sort of the, the climax of this section, one of the few statements in his letters here where he says, this, this is a trustworthy saying. This is a faithful saying. All the things I am saying are true, but this one, pay attention to it. The focus of Paul's testimony is not on Paul, but it's on Jesus what Jesus had done. And thus, the hope we have for unsound teachers is not in me and you, but it's only in Christ. It can only be in Jesus. I want to share three aspects, three, three things that Jesus, three ways that Jesus gives us hope. 
for unsound teachers. First, Jesus' power. Paul starts by thanking Jesus, particularly for giving him strength. Note that the strength that Paul received was not from himself, it was from Christ, right? And that strength turned Paul from an opponent to a faithful servant. Jesus doesn't just have power, but he uses his power mercifully. He uses it mercifully, Paul says, because of his ignorance and unbelief. Now, now listen, this doesn't mean that we should pursue ignorance in order to gain God's mercy, right? That's not Paul's point here. Like, well, the more ignorant I am, then the more of God's mercy I get. So that's good, right? Like, that's not Paul's point. Rather, it shows us a couple of things. First, it shows us Paul's utter need for Christ, despite being the, quote, smartest guy in the room, right? Like within the pharisaical circles at the time, Paul was the top dog. He was the smartest guy in the room. He was the most devoted. And yet, he says, it's because of my ignorance and my unbelief that I needed the strength of Christ. Second, Paul was the quintessential example of those who were teachers of the law. Remember, last week he said, these guys that are swerving, these certain persons, they pretend to be teachers of the law, but they are not. And Paul was the quintessential example of a guy who thought he was a teacher of the law, but in fact actually had it wrong. In other words, if it was not because Paul was so great that he was corrected. Then it won't be because Timothy is so strong in himself that he has any hope in his correcting others. The power to correct these unsound teachers is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And this ought to give incredible hope to Timothy and it ought to give incredible hope to us as well because, you know... <laughs> If you've ever tried to convince someone of something, you know it's really difficult to change someone's mind. It's, really, it's even harder to change someone's heart. I'd say it's impossible, but not for Christ. So sometimes we can feel like we're running our head into the wall. It's wonderful to remember that it's not my power. I'm only a tool that perhaps Jesus will use in this moment, this time, as he chisels away at this other person. So Jesus' power, second is Jesus' purpose. The, the entire thing crescendos into this grand statement. The say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. You see, Jesus came for the purpose of saving sinners. He died to save sinners. He wants to save sinners. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of this fact. He wants to see certain persons set straight. He wants that. Paul says in verse 14 that the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with faith and love. Uh, just, just grasp this word picture for a second, this kind of poetic um, 
way of phrasing this. It overflowed, it abounded, it was unstoppable, overwhelming grace and mercy, and the result of it was faith and love that are in Christ. This this image, Paul, is, is like a dam against Christianity. And Jesus didn't just kind of find a way to leak through somehow. No, Paul's resistance was overwhelmed with the waters of Christ's grace and mercy until that dam broke and just, it just crashed through it. This flood didn't result in, you know, well, it, result, you know, it didn't result in like a couple of opportunities to believe in Jesus. It didn't result in like, oh, a few little lifestyle changes, like maybe Paul don't kill people anymore for confessing Christ. No. It produced real, full, complete, overwhelming changes. Faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, all that the Father gives to Jesus, He died for. He saves and He keeps. That gives us incredible hope and freedom. Hope that whoever Jesus purposes to save is saved. And freedom to do our part and leave it in the hands of God. We don't have to carry more of the weight than God intended us to carry. All we need to do is be obedient to the charge that we have given. Timothy, just be obedient to the charge that you're given. God will take care of the rest. Jesus will take care of the rest. He took care of me, Paul says. And so we have Jesus' power. We have Jesus' purpose. But also we have Jesus' patience. See, here Paul gives another reason for the mercy. He says it's to display Jesus' perfect patience. Well, how, how is it displayed? Notice Paul says in verse 16 that this mercy is received as the foremost. The foremost what? Like the foremost draft pick in the Christian ministry, you know, draft. <laughs> the guy with the most potential. No. Foremost sinner, he says. We like to think Paul was, you know, this great, the greatest of law keepers. And maybe he just didn't quite get Jesus for some reason, but that's not Paul's opinion of himself, is it? Paul's opinion of himself is not that he was the greatest law keeper. Paul's opinion of himself was he was the greatest law breaker. He was the greatest sinner. The law was meant to point people to Jesus, and we already established last week that it was fulfilled in loving God and loving people, and Paul was utterly failing on all accounts. He was not the greatest Jew. He was the worst. He knew the most and failed the most, and thus he calls himself the most ignorant, the most unfaithful. To him, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? Paul doesn't describe himself as having the greatest potential, doesn't describe himself as being, you know, the foremost hardworking good guy that was just a little bit confused on a few things. No, no, Jesus had patience with the worst sinners, with the worst sinner. 
Why? Why was this great patience displayed? It says, quote, as an example to those who would later believe in Jesus for eternal life. You see, God's wrath on all people for their sin is deserved. And yet God is not bent on delivering that wrath just as soon as he has the opportunity to do so. If he was, well, we wouldn't be sitting here, right? You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. God could rightly pour out in full measure all of his wrath right now. But what Jesus did with Paul is demonstrate in bright lights what is true for all of us, that God is constantly merciful with us, that he's constantly holding back his wrath and his love and his grace and his mercy towards us. In fact, he's always been doing that. In fact, that's in his nature. Just think back to the Old Testament. How long did God hold back his wrath before he sent the flood? How long did he hold back his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah? How long did he hold back his wrath on Nineveh? How long did he hold back his wrath on his own people who had betrayed him and turned from him, who were unfaithful time and time again? How long did he hold back his wrath? That is his character. Constantly patient constantly bearing with us. Friends, if you are far from God this moment, you're in sin, have been, I want you to know God has been constantly patient with you, constantly waiting, constantly bearing with you. But I want you to hear Romans 2.4. I want you to go, write that down and read it. Romans 2.4, it tells us that, that that patience, that forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. And if we are not led to repentance, then we're taking advantage of God's kindness towards us. And I want you to know that one day, in the day of the Lord, when you stand before Jesus Christ, that will be a witness against you. It'll be a witness against you. How patient he was. How many times you heard the gospel. How many times God deserved to bring his wrath upon you, but he didn't in his grace and mercy. Or don't, don't, listen, don't, don't wait to come to Him in repentance. This merciful Savior. So we, we have this display so that future generations of sinners might look at what Christ did in saving Paul and might realize the great mercy of God and repent. If God would be is merciful and patient with him and yet would transform his life and, and, would, and would save him by grace and receive him into his family, then maybe, just maybe, he'll do that for me as well. Maybe even though I've stood before others and I've taught things that were opposed to Christ, maybe, just maybe, He might save me as well. Even though I've had times when I've criticized and I've made fun of Christians and I've made fun of Christ and I've made fun of the gospel and I've mocked and I've persecuted people, maybe, just maybe, He might have mercy on me as well. And it's true, He will. If you would repent and turn to Him in faith. So it's displayed to future sinners so they might repent and believe. But I also think it is displayed so that future believers might be 
patient with current sinners. It's displayed so that future sinners might realize God's patience and repent and believe, but it's also so that future believers might be patient with current sinners. That's you, if you're a Christian, that you might be patient with current sinners. Sometimes I think we think to ourselves, uh, you know, so-and-so hasn't changed yet, so it must, it must not be happening. God must not, you know, gonna, he's not going to save them. Why hasn't God saved so-and-so yet? Why hasn't he saved my coworker or my neighbor? Why hasn't he saved my son or my daughter or my brother or my father or my mother? Why hasn't he saved them yet? I can understand that. We want to see people saved. We also don't want to feel like we're ramming our heads against the wall over and over again as we try to share the gospel with them. But we need to ask ourselves a different question. We need to ask ourselves, why hasn't God poured out the full extent of his wrath on them yet? He could. He'd be justified to do so. And yet they still breathe. And yet today is still another opportunity for them to repent and turn to Christ. Yet he's still bearing with them in patience. And if God, the holy and just God of the universe, the God who sent his son to die for sinners, right? The God who is perfect in every way, well beyond us, is still patient with them. Ought not we be patient as well? People who are sinners every day. Should we not be patient with sinners? Consider... Just as an illustration, the death of Stephen. You remember the death of Stephen? This great man of God who was preaching the gospel, serving hungry widows for the church, right? And he's stoned to death. And it says that Paul was standing there giving approval to his death. And we think to ourselves, or I would think to myself, I have thought to myself, well, why not convert Paul before Stephen is murdered? This is a great man of God. He's testifying to the gospel. He's doing all these wonderful things. Why not, if you're going to bring Paul, Saul and make him into Paul, right? If you're going to bring, you're going to do that road to Damascus thing, why don't not just do that before he got there? And gave approval to Stephen's death. Why not do that beforehand so that he could say, wait guys, stop. Let's not kill Stephen. It's a bad idea. Human logic would say, well, <laughs> that's like two birds with one stone, right? You, you know, you, get, you keep Stephen and you get, you get Saul, right? Like, just, like, do that. That's a good idea. Wouldn't that lend itself to God's kingdom expanding more and more quickly? Think about Paul, though. Just think about this for a second. Paul, on that third day after Jesus met him on the road, and the scales fall off of his eyes, and he finally gets it, and maybe, maybe just maybe, one of his first thoughts is, Stephen was right. Stephen was right. Maybe just maybe one of the first images that goes through his mind is Stephen's dead, bloody, beaten body laying there. 
in front of him. Maybe one of the first thoughts he thinks is, Stephen was merely trying to tell us what I now know is actually true. Stephen had my best interest in mind. Stephen actually loved me. Stephen was being patient with me. In his dying breath, Stephen prayed that I and others would be forgiven, and here I am forgiven, and I killed him. Listen, if if Paul thought that Jesus' patience was anything less than perfect, he would be overwhelmed with guilt. If he thought that God was anything less than sovereign over those events, he would be shattered with despair and guilt for what he had done. Rather than being overwhelmed with grace and mercy of God. That would be no good news, would it? But instead, when his eyes are open, he's opened to a sovereign, eternal God. And, and he bursts in this praise that, that God is the king of ages. That he's immortal. In him there's not death. He's indivisible. This is the only God, and that to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's in control of all of history. He's perfectly patient. He's the one who advances His kingdom with or without Stephen, with or without Paul, with or without you or me. And so it's all the more amazing that that Paul gets to be servant to this king. A God who keeps people for eternity, not just for this life. So Stephen's death and Paul's sin, they're not purposeless and they're not irredeemable. He doesn't need to be shattered with overwhelming guilt for what he did or what he did not do, but he can rest in the perfect mercy and patience of a sovereign God. Friend, if if God's not sovereign, that's just not true. God's not sovereign, and if in His perfect patience He did not bring us to where we are at the, just the moment He wanted to bring us here, then we have to look back at the, all, all that happened in our life beforehand and just go, oh man, if I would have just done it different, but because He is sovereign, we can say grace, the grace of God on us. He's forgiven that too. As terrible as it was, He's forgiven it. Not only has he forgiven it, but it's not wasted in him, but he uses it for the good of his kingdom, for the good of people, and for his glory. His reign will never end, friends. We, like like John Bunyan's pilgrim and the pilgrim's progress, when we come to the cross, we can drop the bags down and we can be free of that yoke knowing that in God's patience He has displayed His great glory in our life as well. And so that's the hope we have for opposing unsound teachers, but there's also a risk here, and I don't want us to miss this in these last few verses. Paul comes back to this charge to Timothy. is a big to-do. You've got to oppose them. But But in case we've begun to think 
as Paul shares his own testimony, that this is going to be a cakewalk, you know. Oh, well, you know, Paul's the worst of sinners, and God converted him, no problem. Like, this would be easy, right? Well, unless we think it's a cakewalk, Paul gives us a reality check. There are two images he uses here in this, these last few verses that I want to highlight. He uses the images of war and the image of shipwreck. That's not no cakewalk. Risk one is this, casualties of war. Paul calls the fulfilling of this charge waging the good warfare. And this gives us an idea of the gravity of what's at stake and the, and the difficulty of what's supposed to happen. No one wants to be a casualty of war, right? No one signs up for the military and goes, oh gosh, golly, I hope, I'm, I hope I get to be a casualty of war. No one does that. Everyone is rah-rah until the bullets start flying. And then things change. People like to talk a big game about confronting this or, or, you know, someone needs to do that about that person or whatever until that person's right in front of them. And then the tune changes, does it not? I like how Jim Wilson in his book on evangelism, Principles of War, puts it. He says this, the enemy does not like to be preached to, so he shoots back. Christians do not like to be shot at, so they opt not to preach. That is one solution, but it's not the right one. The war must be waged. And this warfare isn't any warfare. It's what he calls the good warfare. It's the warfare that's not against flesh and blood. It's the warfare Paul's already told this church about in Ephesians 6.10 when he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is an enemy who wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy every person who doesn't believe in Christ right now as well. He is indiscriminate in his hatred. But Paul concludes in that section in Ephesians 6 with this, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we're going to see this as we move into chapter 2 next, next week. The first thing that Paul points out is prayer. Prayer. It's where it starts. It is a spiritual battle. And if Timothy is going to confront these false teachers, he has to start on his knees in prayer because remember, it was not Paul's strength that changed him, but it was Christ's strength that changed him. Paul doesn't just go, doesn't just say, go do this, go do it on your own. He gives them confidence in two ways. I want you to to notice this, that for this warfare, he gives them two pieces of confidence. First, he, he builds him up personally. He calls him my child. Timothy, you're my child. You're my child in the faith. I, I have personally mentored you. You've been with me. I know you. I know your faith. I know who you are. I know your character. I know what God has, has done through you and what he wants to do through you. You can do this. There's very personal support and care with that. 
And we need people in our life. We need a community of believers who are behind us who say, I know you. I know your faults. I know your strengths. I know what you've done. I know you, and I am behind you. Do it. Obey God. The second, there's this prophetic piece. Paul cites the prophecies about you, he says. And we don't know much about what these specifically are for Timothy. We know in 2 Timothy 4.14 that there was a body of elders along with Paul who had laid hands on Timothy and prayed for him, and that this gift of teaching was given to him from God. Now, we may not have the same gift that Timothy has. You may not have the same gift that Timothy has. But we know from God's Word that God promises to be with us. He promises to be with His followers, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And at the end He says, and I will be with you always to the very end of what? Their life? No, the end of the age. That means that applies to me and you as well, church. In a similar way, we have two, these two resources to fortify us in the battle, the support and encouragement of fellow believers. You've got to be in community with other Christians. And the promises and assurances of God and His Word. And this will help us to hold the faith, to keep a good conscience, to listen and obey God, what we know we ought to do. But what if we don't? What if we don't keep a good conscience? What then? And I think this is the second risk, shipwrecked faith. You see, the, the first risk, the first risk of, of, of war, it, you, can't, you can't avoid that and be obedient, an, an obedient Christian. It, it just is. But we can avoid this shipwrecked part. And this is the second risk, shipwrecked faith. Those who reject a good conscience, who refuse to do what they know they ought to do, end up shipwrecking their faith rather than holding their faith, it says. Now, you thought deconstructing your faith was a concept like new, you know, for TikTok people or something, but actually, you know, the love of money and the love of self and the love of fame, that's been a thing for millennia. It was a thing before the New Testament was even finished being written, okay? Every person then and now, they don't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I don't believe this Jesus thing anymore, Rather, they start with the smallest little decision to not do what they knew they ought to do. Listen, listen to what it says. It says, by rejecting this, and the referent for this is a good conscience. And so what he's saying is by rejecting a good conscience, by allowing yourself to have a bad conscience, by not listening to your conscience, that was the start of shipwrecking your faith. And so it starts with that little decision to not do what you knew you ought to do, that little, you know, that little decision to go, I know I ought to do this, I know that God's Word says to do that, but I just don't really want to, and you say no. And the next day there's another one, and it begins to grow slowly. And as you, as you say no to this little thing, all of a sudden it becomes easier to say no to this little bit bigger thing and this little bit bigger thing and this little bit bigger thing until all of a sudden you go, you know what, I don't want to do any of that. I want to do what I want to do for me. And your faith runs aground. And the waves of life and the waves of temptation and the waves of social pressure beat against the ship and break it 
to pieces. And before you know it, you're drowning. That's why we need people to correct us. Because sometimes they can get us unstuck before we have to abandon ship. And I praise God every day for the places where people corrected me, got me unstuck before my ship was destroyed. And heaven forbid, before I let any other people to swerve as well. You see, Hymenius and Alexander, they didn't, they, they weren't corrected. They didn't listen to Paul himself and they were shipwrecked and Paul calls them out by name. He warns the whole church, don't listen to these guys. Don't listen to them. Their faith is shipwrecked. And there are at times people who need to be called out by name, people who, you know, who ought to know better. People who probably still claim to be Christian and Christian teachers, but they're teaching things that are anti-gospel. They're teaching things that are against God's word. And there are times when the church is at risk of listening to these people and they need to be called out to save the church from swerving because they're listening to that. And there are times when those people are within our church and they refuse to repent and we have to do all of church discipline and we need to remove them from membership in the church and we need to say, no, we don't believe that they're Christians. They claim to be, but we don't believe that they are. Just as Paul says that he hands them over to Satan. We must do that when it's necessary for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel. But the motivation for that is always the same as Paul's motivation. And what does he say? That they may learn not to blaspheme. He yet holds out hope for correction. He holds out hope that they may turn back. But I want you to notice one other risk here. One other related risk that we might skim over. Not only to these certain persons who are swerving that might shipwreck their faith, but Paul is implying that if Timothy himself does not take up this charge that he knows he ought to take up, that he will be rejecting his own conscience. And if he rejects his own conscience, he himself will be shipwrecked. Paul is saying to Timothy, you must do this because if you don't, you will end up like Hymenius and Alexander with a shipwrecked faith. Friends, if we do not do that as a church, if we do not take up the charge to confront unsound teachers, then we are disobeying the commandment of God. We're turning off our conscience. And we're swerving from sound teaching. If Paul's teaching on confronting unsound teaching is sound teaching, if you will, then not doing it is swerving from sound teaching. Indecision is a decision. Inaction is an action. I heard a story one time about a British naval captain 
I'm pretty sure it was during World War II. And his ship was docked in the Pacific, along with the ships of, I think, five other nations, five other allies. Or maybe it was four, four other countries, so five total. And across the ocean horizon, they saw a massive storm brewing and coming their way. And so everyone began to hunker down. But this one British captain called all his sailors together, called them all to the boat. And he said, tie down everything. And he set sail. And he pointed the front of his ship straight into the storm. A few days later, that ship made its way back to the port, back to the to where all the other ships had been. And it was beaten, and it was battered, but it was afloat. And every other ship was on the beach, destroyed. There are times when God puts in our path a storm in such a way that we cannot avoid it. And our best option for surviving that storm is not to try to avoid it, but it's to head right into it. It's hard to know how. I get it. It's hard to know when. It's hard to do it. It's not fun being tossed around. But the risk is far too great to not try. And we must remember that we, of all people, have hope. Hope of success in the King of Ages, the only God. Amen. Let's pray.